0: We are going to see a very important and interesting sugya about the obligation of a father to feed his young daughters. Uh, but first, we continue our discussion about the transition between the punishment of Chenech uh, above Sekilah to chenik. If a na'ara uh, commits adultery, she gets, receives uh, Sikila as long as she is an arusa and a betula and a na'ara. However, once she is married, that's only Arusah, she gets a kila. Once she is married, uh, nisua then she gets the normal punishment of, for adultery of Chenech. At what point does that happen? Uh, and it even happens before the, the consummation of the wedding, and it happens even before the wedding itself. Uh, so we learned yesterday that it will take effect, the transition from Sikilat will take effect once the woman is transferred from the father or his messengers to the messengers of the husband. And we learn that from Liznot bet aviha that uh, we only apply sekila in, in, in Mosi Shemra case if she is under bet aviha, if she is still in her father's house. Once the transfer happens, she's no longer in her father's house. So that's what we learn from those words. Now we wonder wait a second, maybe we could use those words to learn a different law. Maybe those words bet aviha, are coming to teach me that even if she returns to her father's house, in other words, she goes, she's married and goes to her husband's house and then is divorced or widowed and then she returns to live back in her father's house, maybe I would think that she returns to her former state and she would receive Sikilah once again if, should she be an, an arusa to a second person. Um, Ahmad, uh, so and maybe this uh, pasuk is coming to teach us that um, that in this case she does not go back, even though she, even though she's back in her father's house, uh, she does not return to the punishment of Sikila, because it says it's not bet avihah. Uh, and that says only if she is in the original state of beta viha, not once she leaves, Bet-Aviha, even if she goes back. So perhaps the pasuk is coming to exclude this case from sekila, and not the case of the transfer. Amadavahu, kival pesaka, hatana de says, no, I, we already know this halacha, when, that if she leaves, once she leaves, even if she goes back to her father's house, she remains under the punishment of chaynek, in the context of annulling vows, uh, says that uh, a father can annul his daughter's vows, a husband his wife's vows, but if someone is in almana or Girusha, then whatever she vows is sustained because that's it, Her, she no longer is married. Uh, isn't that obvious? She's already uh, not under the authority of her father because she was married, and she's not under the fa- authority of her husband because she's divorced or her husband died. So isn't this obvious that whatever she vows will be sustained and no one has the authority to annul it? So rather, this pasuk, since we don't need the pasuk for the simple case, I must be talking about the following case. If a father transferred his daughter to the messengers of the husband, or his messengers transferred them, to the father's messengers transferred them, her to the husband's messengers, and And she became widowed, or she was divorced while on the way. Uh, So before, after the transfer, but before a wedding ceremony. So what's her status? Is she, um, under the, her father's home, or is she under the authority of her husband? Well, neither. So, because she left her father's home, uh, but now she's no longer married to her husband. <speaking in Hebrew> Rather, this teaches us that since even for one moment she left her father's authority by being transferred there, uh, from then on, The father no longer has authority to uh, nullify her vows. She is the same as a, a, a totally married woman who then gets divorced or widowed, who no longer goes back to being under her father's authority. So transfer is sufficient to make her independent for the purpose of vows. And therefore, I can tell, I can derive from this source regarding vows uh, that the same would be true regarding the punishment for adultery. That what, the punishment for adultery, as a na'ara me'orasa bitula would be only until the transfer. Once this transfer happens, then even if uh, she changes her mind and goes back to her father's house, or hey, the husband dies and she goes back to live under her father's house and gets uh, engaged again from then on that is considered she was already nisuah and uh they um uh, and so the law of uh, of the law of sikilah would no longer apply okay Amar, raf papa af so since we know that we have already have a source for that therefore the pasuk bet Aviha, comes to teach us um uh, that, not, not the case, it comes to teach us not the case where she goes back to her father's house, but rather comes to teach us that the transfer itself, uh, removes her from, uh, betula, uh, removes her from sikila and transfer to chenik. The, the context of Neder teaches us that even if she goes back to her father's house after such a transfer, she nevertheless remains, uh, in her, already married status. So the Papa says, I can learn this also from a Mishnah that will back up our conclusion, uh, because the Mishnah in Sanhedrin says that someone who has relations with a nada Me'orasa is only liable if she is a Naara, Betula, and Me'orasa, and she's also in her father's home. You need all of those four criteria. That's the end of the Mishnah. So we analyze, Bishlama Naara it Nara means, and not over 12 and a half and not if she um, she has to be bitula, not if she is a not if she already had bi'a. So she has to be engaged currently and not currently married. So this must come to exclude someone who is already transferred. So even though she's not fully nisua, nevertheless. Uh, 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 she's not fully nesuah. Nevertheless, the transfer is sufficient to remove her from the law of Sikilah. Rather, she gets chenik. And we have yet another Mishnah that that confirms this conclusion habal eshit is kavan she niknasadashut abal nisuin afa pishe lo nibala abal harezeh behanek nikhne niknasadashut abal bearma shema minam so the mishnah there in another mishnah sanedin says that someone who has relations with a married woman once she is enters into the domain of her husband for marriage, even if they did not consummate the marriage with b'a, it already she already becomes Chenek. So, you don't need the, you don't need the, the consummation. Now, uh, we analyze, nichnissa, she enters into the authority in any way. It doesn't have to be the wedding canopy. As long as it, she goes into the hands of uh, the husband's uh, messengers, that's already sufficient to remove her from her father's house. And so, in fact, um, the conclusion that we saw before from Betaviha is confirmed. Um, okay, very good. Now, next Mishnah about a, the right, the obligations of a father over his young daughter. A basic law is a father is not obligated to provide food for his daughter. Okay, quite amazing. Uh, that later on will explain that this is only talking about, um, a daughter who's more than six years old, less than six year old. He is absolutely obligated legally. Um, but more than six year old, six years old, he is not legally obligated. Obviously, most fathers want to sustain their kids, but we're talking about a deadbeat father, uh, not around. He doesn't want to. And, uh, the, and uh, the question is, at what point and how much can the court a uh, rule that he must, and even uh, force him or seize his his assets in order to feed his daughter. Uh, so, according to this Mishnah. Father is not obligated. Now, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah is the one that took over as the nasi when they deposed Rabban Gamliel, and he made a derasha before the Chachamim. Habanim Yishev, Habanot yizonu. He made a derasha on these words that are that are found in the Ketubah, standard text of Ketubah, um, said that sons will inherit daughters will be fed. Okay, so that's the, uh, in other words, the the husband guarantees his wife that he's marrying, that any sons from this marriage will inherit the amount of the Ketubah. Should the wife, if, if he dies first, then she will receive that money herself. But if the wife dies first, then the amount of the Ketubah goes to the sons from that marriage. As opposed to maybe other sons that he has from a different marriage, so that's a guarantee of the that's a guarantee in the ketubah, and daughters will be fed from the from his property. Um, uh, okay, so now the question is when? While he's alive? After he's dead? So the Bialaza Ben nazariah made the following uh, and textual analysis: When do the sons get to inherit the amount of the ketubah? Only after the father dies, because it says. Yorshin, Rabbi So even though it's not actually a full inheritance, the sons may, may very well inherit as well. But this is talking about, but the inheritance, it would have to be split among all of his, his sons. Uh, this is talking about the kituba amount that his sons from this marriage get exclusively. So, but that happens only after the father's death. <laughs> so too, since these two phrases are back to back, we make a kind of hekesh and say that the daughters are, must be fed after the father dies. So yes, the, once the father dies, then the, his estate must provide for food for his young daughters, even above six years old until they're married or until they become adults themselves. Um, uh, so that's a derasha. This is very interesting. That says the word midrash here because usually we think of midrash halakha and deriving something from the uh, uh, juxtaposition of two words as in hakesh. Usually we do that with pisukim from the Torah and we can derive a uh, halakha from that. We don't usually apply a dera- the, 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 this derasha and this methodology to common texts. And yet here, Rabbi Elizabeth Nazariah is, in fact, making this derivation from a non-tanach, non-prophetic text, simply the text of a ketubah. So, um... There is a lot of discussion about this, whether we are Dorshin, Lashon Hejot, can we make a Derasha with regular, uh, regular text or not? So, in the fact, that he is making one, um, we can draw a significant possible conclusion that the idea of derashah, of legal derivation, legal exegesis, is not we do that to the Torah not only because it's a prophetic text and as a prophetic text it has many layers and all that um, but rather a, we do so as a legal text because a legal text has to have multiple layers because any legal document has to answer all possible questions that can come up. Uh, the contract a, a contract has to speak for itself and even if it doesn't explicitly talk about a certain case that comes up we have to figure out from any language somewhere in there uh, something that will guide us to uh, solving uh, some question that can come up. So therefore the authority uh, to draw a legal conclusion uh, based on Midrashic methodology uh, we do in the Kituba because it's a legal document and so to the Torah is a legally binding document It's the essence of the Berit that both sides agreed to. And so, um, this is really very important in understanding what the Midrashim are all about. Um, another proof for that is the fact that the rabbis treat Agada and Halakha differently when they learn Midrash Agada, even from Pisukim in the Torah, they use a different set of method- methodology than they do for Midrash Halakha, which means that legal derivation has, is its own world. Okay, more on that a different time. But now the Gemara is going to analyze, and I'd like to show in, in this analysis is that the rabbis themselves were, in fact, bothered by the morality of this, of the conclusion of this Mishnah that a father is not obligated to, uh, to feed his daughters. Uh, okay, let's see how this works. Bimzo not hu deno chayav. We're gonna make two inferences from the Mishnah. Since the Mishnah says that a father is not obligated in his, fa- uh, obligated, chayav, uh, for his daughters. So we say, oh, that's only for his daughters. Habzodot bino, chayav, but for his sons, he is obligated. Uh, if he was not obligated in either one, then it would have mentioned both. Truth is that this entire, uh, section of Mishnah, talking about the, the, um, the entire of Mishnah is talking about the obligations of a father and husband for his daughter slash wife. Uh, not talking about sons at all. So that could be why he's not talking about sons. But nevertheless, at least we can save the sons, and so sons do need to be fed. Now, the fact that it says that there's no chiyuv, there's no absolute obligation for a father to feed his daughters, but there is a mitzvah, meaning it's a good deed. He should. It's not a legal obligation to the extent that we can force him to do so, but he's strongly encouraged um, as a positive commandment to feed his daughters. So you see that we're kind of inserting that inference into the Mishnah so that even if there's no full obligation, at least we can get a mitzvah out of it. Alright, so with these two inferences in mind that are both not really not absolutely necessary, but uh, you know, applying a rule of omni-significance to the Mishnah that is said this specifically to exclude anything else, we ask, Mane Matnitin, who is the author of this Mishnah? It seems that it can't be anyone. Bi ve Bi Yochanan ben Beroka. These are the three candidates because they all have something to say about this in the following Baraita. I'll see what the B'naytah is, and we'll see why none of them could be the authors. B'naytah's position is that it's a misvah for a father to uh, feed his daughters, and all the more so his sons, because his sons are learning Torah. And since they're busy learning Torah, uh, the, uh, meaning when they're, when they're kids, they're going to school. Um, and so they are not going to be able to engage in work. And so daughters who are not obligated in learning Torah, if it's a mitzvah to feed them, then all the more so sons who have, uh, important other obligation. So that's the opinion of Rabbi Meir, that there's a mitzvah, but not a chiyuv. For either of them, so it can't be the this can't be uh, the Beimaid can't be the author because, while yes, we derive that there is a mitzvah for daughters, we said that there's a chiyuv for sons, and he says it's uh, only a mitzvah for daughters and sons, not a chiyuv. So he doesn't fit with these two inferences. The Omed mitzvah banim la banot mishum ziluta. The basically agrees with Beimaid that it's a mitzvah. For a father to feed both his sons and his daughters, he just derives it in a different. He he just puts the makes the Khomed in a different way. That primarily we understand that it's misfatu to for a father to feed his sons, and then by inference, by Khomed, we learn that the daughters also, because of dishonor, if the if he doesn't feed his daughters and they have to go around begging, that's a much um uh that's a much more that's much more demeaning for a girl to have to go around and beg than for a boy. And so if he has to feed his boys, all the more so he has to feed his girls. But otherwise, it's the same conclusion that's mitzvah for both and no chiyuv for either. So he also can't be the author because uh, our inference said that there's a chiyuv for a father to feed his sons, and he says only a mitzvah. The third opinion is, He says that the obligation to feed daughters is only after the father dies, as the Mishnah said. That's the, uh, that's the clause in the Mishnah, uh, in the Ketubah, uh, that says they have to feed his daughters. HaBanot uh, as Ebi ben be Nazariah derived from that, that's only after he dies and he she gets fed from the estate. But while the father is alive, not the sons and not daughters, neither of them have an obligation and sounds like not even a mitzvah. So, um, so you see that Ebi Biroka was way too lenient, at least on the obligations of the father, to be the author of this Mishnah because the author of this Mishnah says he has an obligation achiyu, for, for sons, and mitzvah, for daughters, and he's during his lifetime. And Reb says, neither. All right, so now nobody can be the author of this Mishnah, so we have a big problem. Um, okay, uh, incidentally, Rabbi Yocham in other Tanaitic sources, um, doesn't say what he says here, he says the opposite. But at least this is the form uh, that the Bavli has of this paraita. And so, we now the Gemara will uh, summarize its argument. Mane Matnitin Once again, it asks the question, who is the author? Banim Mitzvah If it's a Bimeir, it says that there's only a Mitzvah for sons, and we infer that it has to be a Chayu for sons. Mitzvah If it's a he said that sons also have a Mitzvah, not only daughters. And so, again, the same problem as for a Bimeir. We said that there's a chiyuv for mitzvah, a chiyuv for sons, and he says only a mitzvah. Ir biochanan ben Beroka, afilu mitzvah na mileka. Beroka says there's not even a mitzvah for daughters, and not even for sons. So he is uh, too far the other way, Um, and uh, so this is a a problem that nobody can be the author. Um, Alright, so now the Gemara is going to do something fantastic and say, while right now we're in crisis mode and we're all at the edge of our seats in suspense because nobody can be the author of our Mishnah, now the Gemara is going to answer and say, You know what? If you want, I'm going to go ahead and turn around and explain it. This Mishnah, according to any of the opinions, all of the opinions, it could be to be Meir. And if you want, I'll explain it according to Bihuda. If you want, I'll explain it even according to the ben I think you see the powerful rhetoric in this mishnah and this sugyah. Um, you can imagine it being a live presentation of, uh, of the rabbi to his students there, and he's building up this argument, and everybody is all in suspense. Wow, it can't be anyone. And then he makes the opposite argument, and this would really be very uh, uh, educational about how to make an argument on, on both sides, kind of like a debating team, um, but also persuasive. Um, because, um, by clearing the, the, the slate and saying can't be anybody, that's going to make it more open, more, the audience more open to, uh, accepting that it couldn't be, can be any of the three, as we'll see. Now, so it can be to be meir. How so? So, you know what the inferences that we, two inferences that we started with? Those are not really necessary. Maybe what the Mishnah means is as follows. Uh, the Mishnah just said that a father is not obligated uh, to feed his daughter. And the truth is he's also, there's no chiouf for for him to feed his sons either. Against the first entrance, uh, inference that for his son he has a khiyuv. No. Ha bito ika. But for his daughter, there is in fact a mitzvah, the second inference we're keeping. And Kava Labanim, and all the more so for sons. So uh, the uh, the father does have a mitzvah for, for daughters, and there's also kavachomet for sons because they learn Torah. Vahadekatani Bito, so come the Mishnah didn't mention sons if there's a if there's a mitzvah also for sons. Hakamashmaalan, bito, hovahu deleka, ha misvaika. Uh mentioned daughters specifically because you might have thought that for a daughter, maybe there's a there's a there's an, an obligation. So it wants to tell you that, no, no, there's no obligation for his daughter. Um, but there is at least a mitzvah. And since the primary uh, thing that the Mishnah has to teach is for a daughter, that the daughter has no chiyuv, but there is a mitzvah, and only once we know the daughter has a mitzvah, from there we learn a kavachomer to sons, since they learn Torah, so all the more so they have a mitzvah. That's why a specified daughter. Okay, so we can in fact read the Mishnah according to Rabbi Meir. I mentioned only only daughter. Uh Even though the same is true for a for a son that there's no chiyuv. um and it only had to mention daughter because all the more so uh a son if there's no obligation from to feed his daughter for whom it's dishonorable to have to go and beg then all the more so he's not going to have to feed his sons so that's this inference instead of the inference number one that we started with ha mitzvah no ika, but now that we know there's no mitzvah. Uh, that there's no obligation for the son. We can infer that it's used the word to teach us that there is a mitzvah, it is a good deed for a father to feed his son. And from there, we get a to uh, daughters, since it would be more dishonorable for them to have to go beg. Um, And the reason why it specified the daughter is to teach me that for the daughter there's not even any khova even though it would be dishonorable for her to beg nevertheless don't think that uh, there is any obligation uh, there's zero absolute obligation but there um uh, and there's no obligation for a son either, but there's a mitzvah for a son, and therefore also Kavachomet a mitzvah for a daughter. All right, so now we're able to reconcile the Mishnah according to the Bimeid and the Biuda, which means that our Mishnah, according to these readings, says that there is a mitzvah for a father to feed his son and his daughter. Uh, Now we go to the third possibility. We can read the Mishnah easily, and in fact, this is the easiest to read. The Peshat of the Mishnah is exactly to be Yohanan ben A um, father is not obligated, obligated to feed his daughter, and neither is he obligated to feed his son. And in fact, there's no mitzvah even um, uh, at all. It doesn't mention anything about a mitzvah. Uh, so, uh, and and there, uh, it doesn't say anything about a mitzvah. And since... For for, uh, daughters, it's talking about after. Once the father dies, then the estate is in fact obligated to feed the daughters. So that's why it says there's no chiyuv. That's why it specified daughters that there's no chiyuv. So that we would know, yeah, after death there is an obligation to feed the daughters. But when is alive, no, there's no obligation. And certainly no obligation for sons, uh, which is a different story altogether. The sons, after the death of the father, would not be uh, fed by the estate because they would inherit the estate. They would inherit the Mount of Ketubah and together with all sons would inherit the estate so they don't have to be fed from it. Uh, okay, so we see that Nebuchadnezzar, who says there's no obligation and no mitzvah, to feed daughters um, during the father's lifetime—that's in fact exactly word for word what the Mishnah said. So this whole so this whole sugyah is going around a roundabout way uh, to conclude what it could have said simply. Really, the uh, simple reading would have been just uh, just to say uh, who is the author of this Mishnah, and it, should, it could have said Abiyocham Bedoka. Period. Why doesn't it do that? Why is it giving us this whole um, uh, for first say no it can't be anybody and then say it, could be, it can be all three instead of the straightforward interpretation that is simply the opinion of Rabbi Yohan ben Um I think the answer is that if it, fa- if it just said that straightforward uh, answer then the Mishnah would have concluded, that our, our interpretation of the Mishnah would have been that a father has no obligation, not even the mitzvah, to feed his father, his sons, or a Daughters. And this is morally untenable. And therefore, the um, the author of the suya, whoever presented this, whoever taught the sukya preferred that the, that the halakha follow the Meir or the Uda, who, even though there's no obligation, at least there's a mitzvah to feed his sons and daughters. And so it wants to try to fit in, fit the wording of the Mishnah together into the opinion of Rabbi Meir and the Yehudah. So what's the most successful? And it does that. What's the most successful way persuasively to do that? It's first to say, you know what, this Mishnah can't be according to anybody. So now, now we are in crisis mode. We're uh, we're at the edge of our seats. What do you mean? It can't be according to anybody. And then only then we give the possibility that yes, it can be according to the be or yeah, it could also be the So at that point, we're more willing to accept the explanation of the mishnah in according to the and the Um And so this is a much better uh a uh, moral morally uh proper conclusion uh that it can in fact be any of these opinions um if you're interested i wrote a uh, um a article about this sugya and others like it that talk about authorship and uh, and um, find a way of interpreting a mishnah not according to its simple reading but according to another reading, um, and uh, I think we can find support for this methodology and something that uh, Rav Shira Ga'on wrote that says when the Bihud Na'si uh, saw to prefer one view and the later rabbis that after him did not see to prefer that view, they wanted the Halakha to be against the view that Nasi HaNasi sa- taught, they explained it in such a way that they would not have to rely on it. So they would explain away the Mishnah in a different way. For example, Rabbi taught a minority view anonymously because it made sense to him that the Hashid should follow that view. And that is what Rabbi Yudad is doing here. He has the Mishnah be anonymous and follow the opinion of Rabbi Yochanan ben Baraka. But if it did not make sense to the later rabbis. They will tell you that it follows a Rabbi, or they will teach it as a minority view, and we do not practice according to this. So sometimes the Gemara says, oh, that's this Mishnah is a Daat-Yachid. What it does here is a, little, a slightly different um, uh, approach, but gets to the same conclusion and says, yeah, this Mishnah, I know it looks like it follows the and Beroka, and has not, no reason, no obligation on the father at all, but I'm going to show you that actually we can give another interpretation of the Mishnah and in fact it could follow the other two opinions who are halachically and morally preferable. All right, we see the structure of the sugya. also, I analyze there, uh, follows a beautiful uh, structure of a presentation of a thesis. And then following, I'm going to say three things, and then uh, it explains those three things and repeats the thesis, uh, kind of like a well-structured essay that people write today. Um, so this is really a very beautiful and very interesting sugya. All right. This idea that the rabbis were bothered by the morality of a father not being able, not having an obligation to feed his daughters, uh, comes up explicitly in the following stories. et <speaking> ketanim. <in Hebrew> when the sanedzin left Yavneh and went uh, northward to Usha, the rabbis there made a takana. They established an obligation that a father has to feed his sons and his daughters when they are children until they until they become adults. Which means that before Usha, in terms of the Mishnah, there was not an obligation. Uh, And so Usha, they said, this is a problem. There's too many uh, deadbeat fathers. We have to institute this. Absolute legal obligation. So the rabbis asked, is the halakha, does the halacha follow this, uh, this takana, or did it catch on and it's a real takana, or does the halacha not follow it? Maybe they tried to do it, but they couldn't get everyone on board. And uh, so it did not take effect. So here's a couple of stories. The first story is that one time some people came to Raviuda to complain about this guy is a father and he's not sustaining his children. And Raviuda would say to them uh, a jackal bears offspring and he leaves it for others um uh, The uh, the obligation to feed them. In other words, uh, even a jackal uh, bird feeds its young, and this father is worse than a jackal. Right? He 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 gives birth. To, he has children, and he leaves it to the residents of the town to have to collect charity funds to support his own children. The point is that Aviyudah is publicly shaming him. And he's announcing, what a terrible guy. Everybody know this guy, right? He does not take care of his children. Um, So what we see here is that this Takana did not take effect. If it did take effect, then he would have the authority to go and seize his assets to pay for it. But he can't do that. All he can say is that this guy is a real lowlife and he can let everybody know he's a lowlife. Maybe by shaming him, the guy will come around. Amalehu uh, be a similar case came before Chista. They said to his father he's not he's not taking care of his daughters. So he says, Turn a mortar over, you know, the bottom of a big uh, um a, a mill, and stand up on it in the middle of the of the square, and uh, let someone come and say, Um even a raven Uh, wants to feed his sons and this guy does not feed his sons. Uh, so he's even again publicly shaming him that he doesn't take care of his young okay so again we see that he didn't have the the uh takana in place that he can go and take uh the assets he had to but he did announce that he'd be publicly shamed now we ask a question by the way ravens do they actually care about their young do they take care and feed their young the and, and the Um, of Tehillim say Hashem you're so great because you take care of the raven who calls to you why does the baby raven have to call to you because the parents don't take care of it so I thought the, that ravens are not taken care of. Well, it depends what kind of ravens. Depends if they're the white ones or the black ones. It may refer to two two different species, or it may refer to development when they're babies. They're white, and parents don't take care of them because I don't know if they're they don't know if they're healthy enough to even survive. Why, if they survive past the infancy, then they turn black, and then the parents do take care of them because they're uh, they're healthy. Okay, so we resolved that. Another story, An incident of this kind came before Rava, uh, a deadbeat father, and Rava, Rava said to the father, you're okay with that? That your sons are going to be sustained through charity? And you're not going to support them so you see three cases where the rabbis could shame the father but were not able to extract funds now this fact that we say that the court does not have the power to um, take the funds of the father by force that is only if the father is not wealthy but if he is wealthy and he has the funds, then we do go again and coerce him against his will, take the money and use it to feed his daughters. For example, one time Rava had to go and forcibly take Siddhaka funds, a lot of money, 400 zoos from Ravnatan Natan Barame, who was not paying his... Uh, obligation his share of the tax that everyone had to pay for charity so in the case of a deadbeat father not calling it not necessarily a deadbeat father himself but rather he just wasn't paying his sadaka share but the same would be for a father who was wealthy and not feeding so so his sons uh, his daughters so also yeah we could uh, feed them from the charity funds and even if it was someone else's daughter if someone is wealthy we would go to the wealthy guy who didn't pay his share of tzedakah, and we would forcibly take it from him. So all the more so, we'll go and forcibly take from him funds to feed his own daughters, who are poor because their father isn't taking care of them. So therefore, from the law of tzedakah, we can we can coercively seize his property, even though we couldn't do do that just because of a takana. Uh, or any law that actually requires the father to do so. Uh, So therefore, if the father himself is poor and uh, therefore we could not take further charity from him, but if he's rich we could take charity from him. That's the end of this subject. If you just want to see what the outline looks like, um, you see that it starts off with a narration of the case and then partition. Who is the author? And it says it's not any of them, and then it brings the proof. Actually, brings the breita and then what's called in Greco-Roman sources a peroration, going back and saying who is the author and fully explains each of the different opinions, which is just like a kind of five-paragraph essay that we learn in writing today, where the introduction you say the thesis and I'm going to prove it from three points, and then you have three paragraphs proving each of the three points, and then you have a conclusion that summarizes everything together that five paragraph essay actually goes back to Greco-Roman handbooks of persuasive speaking and you see the Talmud and this sugya, at least uh, follows a very similar structure which means that the rabbis when they wanted to persuade their audiences of, the, of a certain halacha would use the best persuasive techniques around, uh, which anyone who heard uh, any public lectures in the town square uh, would have picked up on those very same techniques. And if you're interested in reading more about that, you can send me an email, and happy to send you this chapter. All right, now that we mentioned one of the institutions that was made at Usha, we're going to mention a second one. If someone uh, transfers all of his property as a gift to his sons while he's alive, uh, nevertheless, he and his wife can uh, be sustained from that property, even though he gave it away. I mean, this happens even today sometimes. Uh, someone retires and he gifts his business or his house to, or his, uh, all, all of his property to his sons. See, the sons will take care of it from now on with the expectation that the sons will provide for their father and mother every th- or their, their father and his wife uh, whatever they need, um, so that's a good expectation unless if there's some tension or some problem and now all of a sudden the son say, no, no, we don't want to pay for this and that and they stop taking care of their father. Does the father have legal recourse to force them to pay for, to sustain uh, him and his wife? And so in Usha they made a Takana. Yes, the children have to take care of their father and his wife uh, for their lifetimes from the gift that he gave them in the first place. Now question. Matkifladabizerav Ite Matabishimwelba Nachmani Nachmani Kedolami zo amidu almanani zo netmin chasav who ve ishtomiba says why do they have to make a takana? That means that the law was not so beforehand. We have an even greater law that says um an almana a a man a person's widow has to be sustained from his property, meaning even after he dies and his sons inherit his property, his his widow, which is either the son's mother or their stepmother, they have to provide for her. So if that's true after the father dies, then isn't that all the more so while the father is alive, and this actually was his own property, that he can make sure make the the his inherit his estate pay for the needs of him and his wife? Do you even have to make such a takana? Um, now, further proof, <tushalach ravine be'i garteh> one time ravin sent a letter to bavel, and in the letter he wrote, this is interesting because it's Torah Shabal Peh, but you see it's being written down. Probably some of the earliest Torah Shabal Peh being written down before it was re- actually written down um, is in the form of letters. It would be nice if we could find some of these letters one day. Mi shemet vi al <muchalach> mana ubat. If a man dies, leaving only a wife and a daughter. He has no sons, uh, so now what's going to happen to the his estate? Well, it's going to go to the daughter. Interestingly, not his wife. The daughter will inherit it, like um So, what happened? Who's taking going to take care of the widow in the, while for the rest of her life? So, The estate has to provide food for the widow um as long as she's alive now and the daughter well she uh, inherits the estate so she 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 has no problem she has the money of the estate what if she gets married nisetabat uh, now when she gets married that property that she brought into the marriage will be controlled by her husband, who can take, can enjoy the fruit of the property while they're married. So, how about then? Then, also, the, uh, the, 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 the widow has to, has a right to be sustained from his property, the husband, uh, of his, uh, of the daughter, which could be her. Son-in-law, but not necessarily. It could be a stepmother. Uh, okay. Now, Meta Habat is continue with, continuing in the, uh, read, to read this letter. What if that daughter dies? So if the daughter dies, the property gets inherited by her husband. And so now there is actually no family link between the husband who inherited the property from his wife, who inherited the property from her Father, but if that Almana is still alive, no, even then, what's the case? And he says, This happened to me. Yes, in fact, uh, the widow still has a right to be sustained from the property that was now inherited by the father's daughter's husband, right? Even though it's totally out of the family now, nevertheless, she retains that right. Okay, all that is background for the question, Who me baya? If that's true, that a widow is sustained, even from an estate that was inherited and re-inherited and out of the family, and she still has a right to it, then all the more so, I, you don't even need to tell me that when the father is actually alive, that he gifted his estate to his sons, that his wife would have to be sustained from that while he is alive. So why do you, Why is it? How come they even have to make a takana about this in Usha? Why do they have to say so? And the answer is: No. In those cases where the fa, in, uh, where the father died, so now there's no one to work on behalf of the almana, and w- women usually could not get jobs and did not have access to their own uh, income or property, and so there's no one that's going to work. So in that case yes the inheritance has to sustain the almana but in this case when the father is actually alive and he gifted it to his sons with the expectation and hopefully they'd be nice and feed him but if they're not maybe we would say there's no legal obligation because let him go back to work and then he could provide for himself and for his wife so therefore the ordinance at Usha teaches us that the 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 father can insist that the Um, Gift that he gave gave of his estate that he gave to his sons continue to pay for him and his wife Um uh Even though it's out of their hands. All right. Just like we asked about the previous takanav usha, does the Halakha actually follow this or not? Tashema, Rebi Chanina, Rebi Yochanan, Havu, Kaime, Ata, Hahu, Gabra. Rabbi Yochanan and Yonatan were standing together, and a certain guy came along. Gachin unshaket Rabbi Yochanan akareh, and he bent down and he kissed Rabbi Yochanan on his foot. Um, uh, so, this is surprising. Well, you know, not every, not, doesn't happen all, every second. Standing beyond the tenses, what happened? Who's this guy? How come he is so grateful to you that he's kissing your feet? Well, this happened exactly, this case, that he gifted all of his property over to his sons. And then the sons didn't want to take care of their father, and the case came before me, and I forced the sons to feed the father. That's why he's so grateful. Okay, from this story we can learn, If the law does not follow the Takanav Usha, that means that, the sons did not have an absolute legal obligation to feed their father and nevertheless it would rule that they have to that's why he's so grateful because this guy was going to be left with nothing <speaking in Hebrew> but if that was the letter of the law that the Halacha was like the Takana of Usha, um, then why would he be so grateful? Right? He wouldn't even need to force the sons. Um, that would be the straightforward Halacha, so the kid the guy wouldn't be so grateful that he'd go down and kiss the and kiss Yonatan's feet. So from this story we learn that Rabbi uh, Yonatan went above and beyond the law and forced them to, but that was not the, strictly the letter of the law. And so, just like in the previous case, in this case also, the sages at Usha saw a need for such a thing, but their takana was never accepted as halakha lemaaseh. And we'll see more takanot from Usha on the next stuff. Baruch Amen ve'amen.